Polarization is tearing our world apart. Many of us feel isolated and unable to speak our minds even to our friends and family. This is Effective Conversations with Yale Feiner, where we explore opposing viewpoints on polarizing topics and learn to speak with courage and compassion. Kikila is 43 years old historian currently doing his PhD on how can we be a better allyship to indigenous people. We talk about how and why the oppressed people become the oppressors. He shares his perspective on the role of governments in controlling population, limiting freedom and curtailing human rights in democracies today. Maybe start by saying something about what you were studying in the history classes. In the university? Yeah, in my bachelor's degree, I studied, like, I did an honors degree, so I had to do a thesis. And I studied Redwald of East Anglia. So that would be what would be on England now, or eastern part of England. And uh, he was a, he was like an early Anglo-Saxon king. I studied, like, the stuff that was found in his burial. And I, I asked questions about why people had been assuming he was Christian. And because based on two things that they found. And I used him and his burial as a way to get at Anglo-Saxon colonization in a way from Christianity, which I then carried forward in my master's where I started looking at looking at Scandinavia and Viking Age Norse and the arrival of Christianity. Um, yeah. And comparing it to the way it's traditionally written about, oh, this guy named Olaf became Christian and boom, everyone was Christian. As we all know that's not the case. So I, I looked at it for... Uh, <laughs> I looked at some texts for what remained of the of the pre-Christian stuff and what indications were there that the arrival of Christianity probably just meant to the Norse, oh, another god. That's cool. Let's add that god. <laughs> I have a question for you as a historian that maybe you have more tools than the regular person. When we read the news and when we look for information and we're looking for the truth, and in this time that There's so much fake news and leaders can just say whatever they feel like. And it's, and we need cross checks uh, and you don't know who is um, sponsoring the cross checks information. What do you do? What is your tools to check the information, to know that what you learned even, you know, um, that is right, that it's the truth. That's a really good question. And like you said, with fake news these days, it's like the question. My recommendation is to basically start by not trusting anything. And to be clear, <laughs> <That's good. laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it, it does, it, maybe that's not like the most, it doesn't sound like the most helpful thing off the bat, but that, that's what history taught me about information. Um, and Norse history is a good one for this to answer your question, because a lot of what got written down was written down hundreds of years later by Christian monks. And even though they were Scandinavian, And they were maybe trying to understand a little bit about what their grandparents were thinking about. They had a clear, they had a clear motivation and that was to, to make what was happening like in there today, like seem factually factual and seem part of a long progression. And that's where they were going. So like, uh, history is a bit of a tricky one because it was history might be easier in a few ways because you can get at a few things like there's material culture or what they call material culture which would be belongings that our ancestors have left in burials or just that you could dig up and so if a christian's writing saying oh all of sweden was christian by 1400 and you can go look at the uh, what people were getting buried with and you notice that there weren't people being buried with crosses or and christians tend to favor nothing being buried with them Let's say people are still being buried with a shit ton of stuff, then you can argue, or at least in your mind, start to make the inference like, okay, maybe what's written down isn't the truth. But so now bringing that to today, because let's say what the media is reporting on Russia, Ukraine, we can't go over there and start digging stuff up. Not right now. But my kind of original point still stands like, maybe don't trust it. And, and, and I'm not saying turn away all sources and, and, and treat all media as useless or irrelevant, but just like, what's being told to us? When is it being told to us? And... Why is it being told to us? Maybe start with those three questions and then you can throw on who's doing the telling and who owns that source. Like those are five really important points for us to think about when we're interacting with information because everything has an angle. And, and I don't mean that in a cynical way, not in a real way, like us talking now, it, we both are coming to this with hopes for the conversation for hopes for the yeah. outcome. And that's when the news publishes something, um, They are hoping that people read their news, which means they're going to make it exciting, which means they might 
gloss over certain factual realities to make it exciting. And then, of course, like news outlets want people to click on advertisements. So that's going to be leading their motivation on providing the information for us. What can lead us not only through giving us maybe a bit of information, but what can lead us either directly to a sponsor or just get us to click on a sponsor? So yeah, that's a long, a, a huge long answer to say, yeah, maybe just start by being critical. Ask yourself a few things like, what, why does this source seem legitimate to you? Why is it resonating with you and not someone else? And maybe what would be the motivations of the people giving you that information? Those are really important questions to ask. And you said to ask why it's resonating with you. And I think this, is, this one is the most tricky one because we would ask those questions when things uh, doesn't seem right. And we want to question more because we have mistrust right away. But when something resonates with us, it kind of smoothly goes around us and we believe it, believe in that, in those information without checking it. So when things are very smoothly going into us, this is where our bias is most strong. And this is the place to stop and ask ourselves, why is it resonating with us? When is the first time maybe that we knew this to be the truth? Yeah. Yeah. And these days, these days, it's a friend of mine just pointed out to me yesterday that there's some good ways to cross check now without having to go like digging for stuff that doesn't exist yet. But so Russia has state media, China has state media. There's media coming out of all sorts of non-Western places like Al Jazeera being one of the more well-known ones. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying privilege those over other sources of information, but like maybe if Western media is telling you how evil Putin is, maybe go to a, a, another source like an Al Jazeera. Uh, of course, like take what they're saying to you as more information. But of course, you'll want to know what Al Jazeera's angle is and all that stuff. But like, now the Russia thing, that's a, that's an interesting one. And for me, this is where, this is where it becomes convoluted, like trying to help out my community because I, I'd even say maybe step back from the media and look at our communities and see how we're reacting to it as a whole, like irregardless of what's being told to us. If my community starts acting with fear and starts like saying like different things in our, our day-to-day -day communications, do I need to do I need to go then check the news to see if it's accurate or truthful? I don't know. Maybe I do if I want to have a conversation about what's going on with the Ukraine. But if I want to support if I want to support the well-being of my community, it might be more important for me to then start asking, why is this news important to my community? Like why is it important for my community to be fearful uh, in this way at this time? Because it might not that might not be what's benefiting my community. And in that way, I don't know how you then critique the news from that standpoint, but like kind of it's a bigger question, maybe. Why is this news important? And why is this news having the impact that it's having? I love what you say in the way that it's, we want to see how it impacts us and how it impacts our communities. And many of those news that we will read will create anger and fear. And those emotions are not bad to have. But their emotions are bad to have if they're being used to manipulate us. Because there are frightening things. If the war in, in Ukraine become a third world war, of course people are afraid and they, and they have a good reason to be afraid. Nobody wants a nuclear bomb on their head. So we want to be very aware that this is what we feel and to have a process to, to deal with uncomfortable emotions. Just my, my, my trick with that is why Russia, why now and why so much of it? And that's just one of those deals because the Yemeni conflict is, sorry, the Yemeni genocide has been going on for eight years. The world's worst famine was in Yemen last year. And I don't know how much of the Western media really picked up on that. I know friends out East who didn't hear anything about Ferry Creek when we were like during the blockades last year. And yeah. so that's all I'm not saying let's be ignorant of what's going on in other communities. That's because that's crazy. But maybe more, why is there so much intent from the media to create fear? And why is there so much intent from the media to create fear in our communities around Russia? Where nuclear war, I don't want to I don't want to predict anything here because that always makes people look foolish. And, and I'm not an expert on Russia. Just nuclear war, I don't see that benefiting anyone, uh, especially not the people who are trying to benefit from this war. So then why is it so important that our communities are fearful of a global war while climate change is ravaging the planet? We're losing freedoms every 10 seconds with, uh, with, because of the, the shock doctrining of COVID. And, and indigenous people here, are, we're, digging up, we're digging up their dead children at every residential school in piles. Like, how come it's so important that for the past four months, all we've talked about is Russia? So that's what, when I say, when I see that fear generating in my community, that's when I start to step back and say, okay, maybe let's just ask what's the purpose of all of this rather than focusing on the information being 
you know, given to us. Let's focus on why that information is given to us. And what do you see? Why is the information given to us, if you ask that question? Yeah, considering Germany, Germany benefits from like Russia fuel pipelines, and that's like more of a draw for NATO to not get involved with with Ukraine. But so it's, I, th- I think honestly, it's about trying to shift the shift the narrative away from uh, the the like growing neo fascism in the United States and Canada and places where we live. I'm not talking about European media now. I'm not talking about I'm talking about our media. But like maybe it's to again just take our eyes off of a few narratives that are are really going to make determine what happens in the next 150 years here. The more our governments get comfortable with removing freedoms from us based on let's say public health concerns and 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 fears like that. Meanwhile, maintaining global neoliberal economics that lead to things like Russia invading the Ukraine. What and is Ekmar. global neoliberal economics? Oh, that's so just very basically neoliberal economics. The idea is for states to open up new markets for corporations to make more. So what Russia is doing now is and, and it's like almost easier to see. And our media does a good job of it uh, with the Russian example. Uh, like it's easier to see in Russia because we have words for oligarchs. And right away that conjures up this cabal of rich you know, white dudes who own a variety of things, which fuel pipelines are in there. Like Russia expanding into Ukraine, it's it's trying to gain access to resources and, and the free flow of those resources. But as we see here with the uh, in Canada, with the whittling away of our social health care and our social safety nets, and that's like a direct result of, of governments trying to o- privatize that and open that up to uh, corporate involvement. It's mm. the same thing. And how would a nuclear war in any way, shape or form, let's say? I want to understand that better. So oh. in the healthcare in Canada, we see that we are more control and it's because of private corporate. Why? How do you see the private corporate here? Like all of the all of the stuff that we're we now have to carry a phone with us and the phone, like the government doesn't create the phones and we don't get them for free. And, and like we're using apps that like every time we use an app somewhere and somewhere money changes hands. And let's say. The apps that the government uses to scan and verify those vaccine passports and whatnot, yeah. that wasn't someone at the the Ministry of Smartphones in the, in the government of Canada. That was a third party who developed that technology. And uh, it's a third party that de- mm-hmm. developed the internet. Oh, sorry. Like once the internet became corporatized because the internet was developed for a Department of Defense in the United States and all that stuff. That's a whole nother thing. But like. We're now married to a piece of technology and we're also like the reason why the government purchases so much vaccine in first world countries is because that's transitioning taxpayer dollars to the to pharma corporations. And, and I'm not making a comment on the well-being of the vaccine or the intent of the vaccine or the safety of the vaccine. I'm not a medical expert, but like it's no surprise. It's no surprise that it's a bit more of about transitioning money from my tax dollars going to the government that ought to be for services into, let's say, a third party's hands who benefits right. specifically from it. And that's when you see like AstraZeneca and, and, and folks like that getting the contracts from and Pfizer getting the contracts rather than, I don't know, a uh, government 10 years ago, knowing that this was going to happen, setting up labs of its own to create genetic versions of vaccines that are then covered by my tax dollars and by my contribution to healthcare. Naomi Klein's book, uh, Shock Doctrine, is a really good in- entry into thinking like that. It's a big book. Like I'd say the first, maybe read the first half, but like it's a lot of people see stuff like this in a conspiratorial way. The government will come up with a plague in order to oppress us when Naomi Klein puts it in a really brilliant way because it's more reactionary. It's like government is always and has always, this is my reading of history, government, especially in Europe and especially since the Middle Ages, has been trying harder to increase its ability to control us and know about us. And if that's government's intent, then government doesn't need to manufacture a conspiracy. They just need to keep writing bills and putting them aside. Okay, what new technology do we have and how can that be used to control population? Okay, so they write a bill about transitioning healthcare onto a smartphone. They just don't know how that's going to happen until COVID hits. And then you've got this pile of lovely legislation. All you have to do is enter COVID into the blanks and pass it. The whole thing was there from the get-go. We can't imagine... Us as activists, let's say, or even us as forest defenders and supporters of indigenous sovereignty and land back, we can't imagine that our oppressors are any stupider than we are. If we can Google something and find a result, they were doing that 10 years before we were Googling it. Like they were Googling it before we were. We end up always being on our back footing. We don't have we don't have a ministry of education or health or we don't have a Senate. We don't have hundreds of people trying to come up with new oppressive technologies every day. They do. So like when COVID hits, we're on a back footing. We're concerned for our families. We're concerned for our elders. And we're concerned about 
it seemed like toilet paper. That seemed to be a big deal. Whereas the government doesn't have to be concerned about that. All they need to be concerned about is how can we capitalize on this opportunity and which things like in this context are more functional for this catastrophe. Isn't the government role is to better with the people? I don't know. I've lived in Canada on and off since 79 and 1979. That's when I was born and it's gotten less free. My freedom, my freedoms have been uh, whittled away the entire time. And, and that's not for lack of trying on the part of activists and having been blessed enough, like I'm the first person in my family to get a master's degree. I was the first person in my family to grab, graduate with what a North American would call a bachelor's degree. But so I'm still in a very privileged position to have, sure, it's, it's like my, I think I calculated the other day, I'm going to have $70,000 of student debt when I'm done with this PhD, but I still have had the privilege to go somewhere and just look at history for, for a few years and, and sit with it and have some very smart feminists and very smart professors of color who were able to bring me to certain perspectives. But like looking back, even through the sixties, looking back before that, like government has never been regardless of the democracy, and this is an easy anarchist uh, critique, but it's never been about the betterment of the well-being of all people. It's been about improving methods of control. And sometimes that just means, hmm. sometimes that just means enfranchising folks. And like whiteness is a great example of that. I'll, I'll use, a, if you look at, let's say Nova Scotia, I don't know, in like the 1700s, uh, the 1600s, 1700s, where all sorts of freed black slaves were, that's where like part of the, uh, the underground railroad terminated. All sorts of free black slaves are showing up in Nova Scotia and like what they they start to become friendly with the, uh, the white working class. And what like, we could, you and me, we could probably agree that it, let's say that the 1600s were probably not a, a free time as the way we consider it for the working class, even among European descendants. It was hard labor conditions, diseases were rampant in the colonies, all that stuff. So then all these freed black slaves start showing up in Nova Scotia and there's all these Irish folks who were living effectively as slaves, not in the same context, but like indentured labor. They had just survived genocide after genocide in their territories. What's to stop them from getting together and rising up against the, what, 150, maybe even 1500 white British people who are making all the money in town? What's to stop them? You enfranchise some of them. You tell, you create the category of whiteness and you tell the Irish that but like the same way God told man that we could dominate women and the same way God told humans that we could dominate nature. There's a reason why us whites are so good at it is because God picked us over the blacks and over these indigenous people. So while the, the Irish maybe would have felt like they had gained certain freedom, what's the practical reality here? Like are Irish people better off today than uh and they, they were back then. I don't really know. I just know that they think they're white and they think they're better off than black people. Mm. But they're also terribly fearful that black people and like people of Latin descent moving here or people of like East Asian descent who are moving to North America are stealing their jobs and taking their jobs when it's the same set, it's the same set of white capitalists who are outsourcing those jobs now. It's, it has nothing to do with migration, but the category of whiteness allows us to be oppressed in better ways. And it turns us into oppressors. It turns us into people who then go out and oppress black people by saying, no, we're not going to hire you. No, we don't want you living in our neighborhood. <laughs> so like, I don't think. And I think this narrative is also a turn out to be false. The narrative that they steal the job, they actually make the, the economy better. So it's a narrative that we're told also to support the idea of hating the other. Mm. And so why would this be so important to government? Is that because government is honestly trying to make life better for us? T to me, it feels more like, no, government's just trying to get better at government and governing. Like, and through the advent of whatever we call democracy, Michael Moore pointed this out. I, it might have been in... It might have been in Bowling for Columbine, but so he even takes exception with the whole concept of democracy. Like we talk about living in a democracy, in a free society, but other than once every, well, let's call it four years. In Canada, it seems to be once every 16 months, but once every four years, I get to go put a piece of paper in a box and that's supposed to be my interaction with the government or that's supposed to be my participation in democracy. But when I go to work, I, I can't voice my, I can't say, hey, I don't think this is fair. I'll get fired. Um unless I have a good boss, but like none of our jobs are democratic. I can't walk into a health, like a hospital and say, I'd like to speak to the, the board of directors. This needs to be more democratic in here. That's not possible. The police, I'm sure we both understand after last year, the police yeah. really are not democratic. Like they don't want to hear about us. They'll, it's easier for them to arrest us, find out they've done something wrong and release us than it is to have that conversation, democratize the interaction. So let's say we just 
we start with that and say, okay, how democratic is our society? And the answer is not very much. Then how free is our society? That's a good follow-up question. And I'd say not very much. Like, uh, And I don't mean with mask mandates. My finances are now, especially because of the pandemic, entirely tracked by computers. I can't, people don't take cash anymore. So everything I do, every step I take, like from paying to school to getting getting money from, from my job, it's all now tracked. Yeah. Now my healthcare is on my phone. <laughs> so that's yeah. being tracked. The whole thing is, right. we might feel because like I, we have, like what is freedom in our society? The freedom to choose between oppressions or the freedom to choose like which resources we want to uh, consume. I don't know that equates freedom to me like women still have to pay for fucking tampons <laughs> <laughs> so now we're talking about freedom and the freedom conversation is very interesting because freedom for different people are different things for some people having the vaccines is freedom to to walk around free and not to hurt others and for some people vaccine is taking away their freedom for some people because they trust government because they trust expert because they want to be told what to do And they don't trust themselves to know, to know what's the right things. And they don't want to be expert and then they don't want to learn everything. Uh, freedom for them is just somebody taking care of them and, and tell them um, what's the right thing to do. So I wonder, what would you say to, to people that think completely different than you about trusting in the government and what the government intentions for them and about control? And that's a tricky one, right? Because uh, it's a very similar conversation to folks like folks go spend time on a blockade and get arrested to defend uh, indigenous sovereignty and some trees for what some the way people look at. My, my first reaction is to folks like that, because well, I've done some de-escalation work in Matulia during solidarity stuff. It's And I find that people just want their beliefs reflected back at them. They don't want to have to think too much about stuff. So while I'm de-escalating folks who are like, You fucking hippies, you all want to tear this apart. Like, but we need a strong leader. I'll say, like, why do you think we need a strong leader? And that, that's a good place to start when people come at us with a statement. Society wants a strong leader. Maybe it's easier just to humble ourselves before that and just ask them why they think that's important. Because I've got my, I could tell them no. I could straight up and say, no, you're wrong. This is what I believe. But that's not going to get us anywhere. And uh, we're, we're going we're gonna to be better off having conversations, really shitty conversations with shitty people. Because that'll make us better too. But like, why do we think a strong leader is important? To me, that doesn't feel like it's universal. There's plenty of, there's plenty of examples from non-Western, even pre-colonial Western stuff. Sorry, pre-capitalist Western stuff. There's examples of, of collective and collaborative decision-making. We see it with, we see it on the land where every, everywhere Bill is, you'll notice that Grandma Osa is with him or, or there's always the female with the male. And, and we get that there's duality and that immediately presents two opinions. That's not about having a strong leader. That's having someone who is maybe wise enough to speak about things and give their opinion, but it's not about cramming leadership down our throat. And there's always that collective aspect. There are other people who are involved in the decision-making and I'm not trying to speak for in, I'm not trying to pan indigenize here. I'm just saying in our example, being at Ferry Creek, because there's a, the need for strong leaders is, is something through judeo-christian worldview you don't see it through a lot of other worldviews and it's it gets exported in the worst ways a lot of the kind of post-colonial africa what you might say would come out of this 50s and 60s and 70s like where did that go that was a groups of people who now i'm going to i'm going to speak a little bit generally I, i've got some experience with U uganda so maybe i'll, I'll say northern uganda mm -hmm. among the like There you get like low population group collective decision-making based on family interactions and like your interactions with other people. And then the British or whoever shows up says it's all about strong leadership. It's all about the divine right to rule where God has chosen a king or God has chosen the capitalist because idle hands are the devil's work. You better be busting your ass to make money. That's a good Christian. And then they leave and say, well, you better find a strong leader. And that turns to shit pretty quick. Like we see it played out constantly in the post-colonial Africa. But we also see it in, in a very real and material way in our lives. It's slipping my mind, uh, whether it's Leroy Little Bear or, or Daniel Wildcat who wrote uh, But okay. Both of them have great things that everyone ought to read. Like uh, Wildcat wrote Red Alert, Saving the Earth with Indigenous Red Knowledge. Red Alert. And Leroy Little Bear wrote a, a piece called Jagged Worldviews Colliding. 
And, and they're both really informative about like kind of settler interactions and settler worldview. Because like you see it in the, in lawyers, I'm going to go there because that's a really easy one to do it. Isn't it weird that in settler society, all the knowledge about being in settler society is outsourced to professionals, right? Like how yeah. come I only find, right? Like how come I only find out I've broken a law when a cop comes up to me and arrests me or gives me a fine? How come... There's no stories around the campfire that tell me how to be in, how to be a good upright member of my community and how not to hurt people and how not to offend people. How come we don't each carry these teachings with us? How come we don't each carry this knowledge and, and, and law with us? Like we've got this divine right. There are fundamentally, and this transitioned into science, unfortunately, through Francis Bacon. And because the folks who were transitioning during the Renaissance, they were left with this question, okay, if there's no longer heaven, how do we then keep people in line? And that's maybe, a, I don't want, I want to answer your question first, but so that created a lot of outsourcing and we, we've seen that with the priest. We now see it with the lawyer. We, we see it with the, uh, the economist. None of us are smart enough to have any understanding of what's actually going on in our lives or our world. We need it to be interpreted yeah. and given, given to us by professionals. And maybe that's more where our desire for strong leadership comes from than actual a need for strong leadership, because we all negotiate weird stuff all the time with just with a partner having a discussion about something with our colleagues trying to pick what color the birthday cake for that person at the staff thing is going to happen. And these sound ridiculous because they're not like, how do we stop Russia from invading Ukraine? But that doesn't even mean that uh, we won't come up with better decisions and better outcomes without strong leaders. <laughs> yeah. That's reminding me that I read this uh, book, How Democracy Die, and they're talking about strong leaders, charismatic leaders that are being elected in regular democratic elections, like Putin, Hitler, Mussolini, and so many others. And they are coming out of a society that's in stress, maybe in low economic state, and people are looking for rescue, looking for strong leader. And then they found these strong leaders and they believe them to be democratic, that they will help them. But then everything shifts and, you know, the strong leaders want more power and taking more freedom from the people and having their own ego and opinions applied. Yeah. And, and that's actually, we might even say that that's by design, right? Like, uh... Why do you think why, like why do you think Jews were so hated in medieval Europe? It could be because they were Jewish, like but honestly that sounds a bit ridiculous to me. It sounds ridiculous that people who worship the same god, who have the same like introductory text to their religion, that you would you know really just want to kill all the men in your village. Like I don't see I don't see that. There's must be something missing. And to me that's it provides a really clear other, like it's easy to hate people who aren't in your group. For whatever reason, as soon as we start to get fearful and I I don't know that this bears out if the further back you go, someone once said to me, let's say two people meet, two Neanderthals meet in like way back hundred thousand BC in the woods and they, they have an inter interesting exchange and they walk away and they go back to their villages. And one of them says, oh, I met these strange people. They're so tall. They're so tall and thin. Wow. And the other one goes back to their village and she says, I met these short, plump people. It's so weird. I've never met these plump people. But one of them was black and one of them was white. And it really comes down to you're going to pick, based on your cultural context, you're going to pick what's important to you to make the difference. And so like with the similarities between Judaism and Christianity, especially in doctrinal stuff, like what's that really about? It's You need to create a narrative if you need to control people. It's, it just comes down to that. And now to bring it more into our time, like... Democracy is nothing if not legitimization. How can Trudeau get elected on an environmental platform, buy a pipeline, and then get reelected twice? It's really not about us having our say. It's about them looking like they've been legitimately named as the authority figure. Horgan said that when he approved Site C, there's a great quote where he says, I'm not going to be the first white man to disappoint Indigenous people. Even though he had been elected saying, I'm, I'm going to cancel Site C as soon as I get there. And in, in, in that, yeah, because in that quote, like whether he's speaking to indigenous people or whether he's speaking to everyone, it, it's still true. Like he's not the first person to get elected and lie about all of their campaign promises. This is a very good point because I see it everywhere in the world that the elected official promise one thing. And when they're getting elected, they're doing completely the opposite. And it made me think like, are their hands are tied? 
uh, what's going on? Why they're not doing what they promised and what they were fighting all their life until getting to the point of being elected to do? Their priorities changed or their perspective has changed. They know more. Yeah, it's like, it's so interesting. And it's not just with indigenous people. It's everywhere I see that. This isn't definitive, but just as you're saying that, two things are coming up for me. One, one, it is lies, uh, and it is just about maintaining the illusion of legitimacy so that this style of, uh, of government can keep going forward and we can keep thinking we're free while we're oppressed. But the second thing is also, okay, if their hands are tied, like by who? If this is allegedly democratic, and why are these conversations that are good for us? taking place behind closed doors with no transparency. And why then are our elected officials, the only people we actually get to have that say on, why are they not able to do what they what we elected them to do because of this lack of transparency? Which brings me to the first answer, it's all lies. Because what's her name? She was the, she ran for the city council, Laurel Collins. I, I'm gonna pick on Laurel for a minute because a lot of good folks busted their butt trying to get her elected on council in Victoria because of her indigenous stance and her willingness to work with indigenous friends and, and her stance on the environment. And she jumped ship halfway through her mandate to get elected to the NDP. So I'm going to pick her as an entryway. So she's an academic. She, you, you can't tell me she doesn't think that there's a problem in government. You know what I mean? She could say it. I think it's a lie. She works through manipul uh, sorry, municipal politics, at which point she'd probably be introduced to the fact that like development owns the South Island. She'd see it. She'd see the lobby. She'd see the interactions. She'd see the money exchanging hands. Then she moves to federal politics. Let's and so on and so forth. But let's say she gets elected prime minister. Then you'd have to tell me that like her and people like Horgan and people like Trudeau didn't know that their hands were going to be tied getting there in the first place because of their decades of experience in, with politics or their years of experience with politics right. or with their education. They know what's going to happen when they get there. So we're back to the lie because they know the rich people that this Canada is, what did they say? Three, three com companies in a trench coat. I know it. You know it. How the fuck can they know it, but not know it? Right. So that to me tells me once again, that our democracy is all an illusion. And just, I, I want to hammer that home a little bit. Our democracy is all an illusion. And it's very important that we start seeing that as the, the basis for our resistance, because the more we keep standing in front of the legislature with a sign saying, please reform this, please change this one aspect of the system. Like, how does that benefit anyone? Because the whole rest of the system we know is corrupt and is about governing us. D does it reduce harm for our indigenous friends when we say, hey, could you change this one aspect? No, like their land is still stolen. Like we're still here. It doesn't change anything. And so the more we ask for an advocate, and that's the worst part, the more we advocate for it. And I'm not saying that we should go shooting people or burning. I'm not talking about that. I'm a straight white man and no one should listen to me about what the future should look like. Come on. <laughs> Enough people who look like me and sound like me got us to this present. And this present's pretty shitty for a lot of people, right? But what does it look like to people? What does it look like to indigenous people and women and people of color on these territories? What does dem democracy look like to, to, to you? Um, because it's obviously not working for them. And the more we reform it, it's not going to work for them. The opioid crisis like, is not getting better, despite all the money and all the government work being put into it. Okay, so that's reform. People are going to turn to reconciliation and say, oh, hopefully we can reform our, our interaction with Indigenous people. It's like, yeah, I don't see, I don't see how, like uh, the Senate being turned into the, the Grand Council of, of Matriarchs. Okay, so now Canada is going to be governed by the Commons and the Grand Council of Matriarchs. I don't see that happening in all this stuff. It's just going to get, they're just going to find new ways to tell us new lies, to tell us, to make us easier to control and govern. So what is your, in a way you're saying not to stand in front of legislation, what, yes, what would, would work or do there is a solution? What happened in the past? Like what worked in the past? Yeah. What worked in the past? That's a really tricky one. I don't know uh, from where I'm standing, not much, not much has worked in the past. And it comes back, it comes down to the monopoly of violence and stuff like that. But there's also because we don't get together on a lot of things and you see it with anarchists and, uh, and everyone, right? From conservatives, let's say. You so call yourself anarchist? No, not. I used to be. That's how I came to a lot of this stuff. Now, my description would be more like relational. And I don't know if that's even a political kind of bent. But if we form a political interactions based on our relationships, we're probably going to have better politics. 
And it's the same way with if I interact with my, the environment in a way that like sp- places it as a, something I'm in relationship with, I'm going to have a way better experience with nature. Yeah. And so that's awesome because it, it got me to a lot of things. Like it got me questioning forms of democracy, forms of hierarchy, forms of stratification. But like, I'm a little bit distrustful of anything that comes out of Europe right now because like it, it, they, they come out of Europe and Europe's had so much time to, to try to, to try and get it right. And it, it hasn't. I'd like to see what like what a whole group of matriarchs would come up with. And and even if it seems even if it seems like undemocratic or whatever, I'd say let's give it a fucking try uh, because we think our democracy is a democracy, but it's not. So let's try something that maybe looks undemocratic, but might be more democratic. Yeah. So we wanted to talk about oppression. <laughs> Yeah, sure. And so, something I wanted to ask about that is, and something that Bill was talking in the podcast, that the oppressed person become the oppressor. How does right. that happen? Give us some example of that, maybe with indigenous, but maybe as a, because you have this bigger view of how how this is happening. Jews were living in Europe and, and everywhere around. They came to Israel and now we became the oppressor, right? Right. To So like it's happened all the time and you can see people that grew up in a difficult family, difficult household. And mm-hmm. when they grow up, they hit their kids. They become the, the, the one that they didn't want to become. Mm-hmm. So how do you see it in the history? How do you see it with native people? Yeah, totally. Yeah, fear to me would probably be one of the bigger motivators for that type of downward oppression, like that rolling downhill. Because like we see it, let's say before England conquered Wales, before England conquered Scotland or before England conquered Ireland, you might safely assume that there were some working class English people who really didn't like being English. They didn't see themselves as English. They didn't see them as the same people who were governing them. And for historians who are going to listen to your podcast, I'm just going to say, I am aware that England was a very different place at the time. Like it wasn't so top down, but there's still, to me, it comes down to a problem of worldview and a problem of fear, right? Like as long as your worldview is telling you that people ought to be governed and that there is a hierarchy, and then you interject fear where the people above you find people below you for you to shit on. If I get fearful about the people below me ever getting above me and shitting on me, then I'm going to do my best to hold them down. Let's say working class Irish in in Montreal in the early 1900s or late 1800s and people of color, right? Like uh, the Irish had been so brutally oppressed. Like the amount of Irish that are, that died just building the bridges for Montreal, it's ridiculous. It's just ridiculous. So, but then you, someone presents you with people who everything is telling you they're less than you and they're trying to get to your level. Then the fear must kick in because how many more people can abuse me? I realized that about my, my own family. So both of my parents were abusive for both me and my brother. And it happened in different ways over different times, sometimes interacting. And I only realized that last year, so I was 42, that my brother I, I was also abusive to my brother growing up. I had no idea what I was doing and that doesn't excuse it, any of it. But, so my brother had everyone on top of him shitting on him. And the only reason why I was shitting on him was because he was beneath me, like in the strata. And I was really terrified that uh, if he ever got the chance, well, he'd abuse me. Like my brother and I, we live together now and we both acknowledge that wasn't the case. But like when you're living under, let's say you're living under the constant stress of food insecurity, housing insecurity, What's going to happen to my kids? What's going to happen to my parents? They're getting old, they're dying, and it doesn't look good. What's going to happen to me? And then someone conveniently tells you, you're better than all of these other people. It just then, like, you're so constantly terrified and you're in this state of a constant adrenaline, fight or flight, that, like, you just pass that forward. Because I'll tell you, you know, the times that I become violent with myself because I self-harm because of because of the abuse uh, and like really low self, self-value and self-worth because of the abuse, the only times I self-harm and the only times I become like hard to deal with for my friends and my community is when I'm not in a safe spot. So if the Irish uh, in Montreal in 1930, or even take the Quebecois, the Quebecois did not become white until probably the 1980s. And they, they're some of the most... Became white, you mean not considered as white? Yeah, like they were told to, to speak white and get off the fucking sidewalk by Anglos, even though Quebecois are as white as anything, as any whiteness. But up in, all the way through up until the quiet revolution in the 50s, like that was the Quebecois trying to become white. Folks like René Levesque will tell you differently. But if you look at it in this enfranchisement kind of style of whiteness that we have, the Quebecois were sick of being shit on. And like they needed to become white in order to shit downwards. And like immigration was changing at the time. 
more people were coming in from the Caribbean and from like the, the Franco sphere. So like French Africa and all that. Why it's so normal for us to want to shit on others and continue the same cycle? Like, why can't we see that this is what's wrong and that we want to break out of this cycle of the pattern instead of being in the same pattern? It's a crazy question because the fact you're having this conversation with me means that there are some of us who are sick of this, right? Who can see that yeah. it's a pattern and it's bullshit and we want to step out of it. The problem then becomes quote unquote white people, like people who buy into whiteness, who believe that like the ones who were honking in front of the, I'm not saying the whole movement was racist, but like the first weekend that the trucker convoy was in Ottawa and you saw the, the Nazi flags and like uh, the Confederate flags. The reason why those folks keep wanting to shit downhill is because they, they can't see they can't see that they are being oppressed. All they can see is the fear. All they can see is their food insecurity, their housing insecurity. It's like they also can't see any alternatives because they've been told the entire time, like my whole life, people have been telling me my dad's from Switzerland and like Switzerland is one of the most whitest, like racist places I've ever experienced. And I'm structurally, I don't mean that they use bad words when they're walking in the street. If you look at their laws and the way they govern their society, it's all about excluding everyone. It's all about excluding any form of like non-Christian or non-science worldview. It's all about excluding architecture. Like they outlawed minarets so that Muslims couldn't build based on their architectural style in Switzerland. But so you, you then not, you can't see any alternative as being an alternative. You could just see it as less than us, as not as progressive as us or the, the same we tend to see our democracy as this constant process that we've we've been working for and without it we'd be worse off that means all the alternatives become stupid and ridiculous and backwards so uh, imagine walking up to someone who's screaming about black people taking their jobs and uh, covid being the, a chinese conspiracy and say to them hey man why don't you go to the local nation and check them out at the next uh, at the next open community event and see how they do styles of government the person will tell you to fuck right off. Like they won't even hear you. They won't see that A, as a style of government, let alone B, as a possible alternative for our liberation. So like it's fear and it's not having access to alternatives, which are bred through that fear. I want to sit with this for a second. Yeah, like not having alternatives. It's very interesting because when I think about alternative, I think about alternatives that I know that are better. But I don't think about the alternatives that I don't know. Because the thing that we don't know, we're usually afraid of. And that keeps us in the loop of not finding a real or better solution. And then we're stuck. And maybe that's where we fit in. Because I don't know how you feel after your experiences out at ISTER, but that's not going to change our society. Whether Even if all the old growth that's left standing, even if that all gets preserved tomorrow. And let's say even, let's say magically Horgan comes down and says, okay, let's call this uh, Pachidat territory and the BC government will never interfere again. <clears throat> that won't change much for us. Like uh, the whole rest of this continent is filled with crazy white people who just either can't, won't, or refuse to listen to stuff like that. Maybe for, maybe that's a good spot for us to, because like I, I could go out and get arrested every day and it's not going to change anyone's minds. I'm going to get arrested every day and it's going to, the cops will have to spend more money and uh, more time and all that stuff. And because indigenous people can't walk up to those white people who refuse to see them and have a conversation, uh, sorry, an intelligent and meaningful conversation with them, that might be our role. As, uh, and that's, that moves us out of allyship too, because allyship becomes problematic. It's like allyship sounds like it's very tied to a moment or an event or like an action. But if we just become like good neighbors or good, good sellers, I don't even, that sounds like an oxymoron, but and have those conversations with our, our neighbors, our, our friends, our, our families, even people we hate. Sit there and listen to them and then just say, but why does it always have to happen like that? Like, why do, do you want to come with me to the Friendship Center and do some volunteering? Let's go see how badly these Indigenous people want to take your jobs or whatever the hell that you think. Yeah. Maybe just being a conduit because like my, my, my PhD work actually focuses on trying to find ways for settlers to do this type of work that we're discussing before you even get to a land defense, like basically how can we support indigenous sovereignty in a way that doesn't harm indigenous people and indigenous sovereignty? That's what my doctoral work looks at. And honestly, what a surprising thing, I thought it would be activism. 
when I started this thing in 2019, my thinking was it's going to be stuff like Fairy Creek. It's going to be stuff like wet sweat and solidarity actions. But what I'm finding is like the the, the rampant racism and, and Bill, your interviews with Bill have been phenomenal for sharing like the indigenous perspective based on mental health and intergenerational trauma. Those spaces are really hard for us to have any meaningful interactions. And we're talking about people like us who are aware of alternatives, who are aware that there's a problem. But yet, like yesterday, I was working on the land at, uh, with Sarah Jim, who's a, who's a Husseinich from Sekum artist, language revitalization practitioner and, and, and land practitioner, revitalization practitioner. And so we're in a group of 10 people pulling ivy from what used to be a Gary Oak ecosystem where the ancestors were buried. It was a food forest. That's where members of the Husseinish community would spend a considerable portion of their, of their efforts, of their time. And it was very meaningful on multiple layers. And we were just pulling ivy, but like the conversations that were happening, the introduction to alternative forms of governance that were going on, the fact it was woman-led, we circled up beforehand, we circled up at the end. Those are some folks who like, maybe if I showed up to them wearing this t-shirt and I was like, hey, you need to fucking listen to how bad your government is, they're not going to hear me. They're never going to change. They're never even going to think about going down to the Friendship Center or the local nation and uh, seeing if they, I don't know, can, uh, can volunteer or whatever. So like maybe what we can do is just find those moments of interaction where like our mothers might enjoy it and not be so racist in public. So you're inviting meaningful conversation with people around you. And at the same time, you're saying some people will never change. And I want to challenge the never, the never word. Like it's never would be like that, or they will never change, or they will never understand, or they challenge yourself, give them more credit. Before you judge them, first challenge them. Give them the chance to prove you wrong. Otherwise, it's an assumption. But so, because how do you see these alternatives if you are fearful all the time and if you are just trying to do what's best for you and your family and you don't even know what best is because you're so addicted to your goddamn phone and getting these dopamine hits that make you feel better about yourself? Yes, and it's interesting because maybe you started as being afraid of something, but now when you're addicted to your phone or, or anything else, you forget to, it started from fear. And now the fear is unconscious and now you have a destructive habit. My mom, for example, she's not a fearful person. Uh, she thinks very logistically. She believes to think very logistically. But what is missing for me from the way she thinks is things in patterns, seeing things as systems, how systems work and how things affect other things and the chain reaction of things. This is, this is definitely missing and this is why she won't ask who decided to advertise this news, for example, because she doesn't think this way. And it took her years to realize climate change is either thing. Oh, oh sorry, <laughs> yeah, sorry to hear. <laughs> But, but maybe yeah. not that maybe she's not fearful for herself, but having been through hardship and my, my mom's father was an immigrant and I, I know some, some Romanian folks who came through some, they're in my generation, but their parents were the ones who escaped Ceausescu and uh, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. They might not be fearful for themselves and they might be, they might've proven to themselves that they, they can overcome, but do they want their children to have to go through that? Do they want their grandchildren to get, have to go through that? The fear isn't always about us specifically and, and they might not describe it as fear they might describe it as just like hope even use yeah. a positive spin on it but i wonder i don't know the, your relationship with your mom but because my mother is very difficult to talk about on uh, talk with on levels like this but like maybe if you were able to ask your mother like what we, does she have any concerns for your well-being does she have any concerns for you and your siblings yes. well-being and and that might Definitely. be more where that drives that kind of ignorance you are so right how i miss that so yes Fear and anger are usually covered by pride. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. So pride will shield us from the tender emotions that we have underneath, the difficult emotions that we don't want to feel. Yeah. And that's, that's genius. And that's is, really good. You know, you were talking about lies before. So one of the biggest lie in our society, I think, is the fear from our own emotions. We go to experts to help us understand what we feel or to help us just feel. Since we were taught that our feelings are scary and can hurt us or can hurt others, 
and we need to be professional to deal with emotions, our emotions. Like what, what is more separating and alienating than fearing from our own emotions that we are 24/7 with them? We are afraid of our own power. So you know, in the conversation with Zwaya, we were talking a lot about avoiding discomfort, the discomfort from our own feelings. When we don't want to feel something, we blame other people. We are blaming others for us feeling in a certain way. And what left in the end of the day that we're staying alone and lonely, and we can't trust anyone, that it's a projection of us not trusting ourselves. And what's more terrifying than being alone, right? Like when we're social beings, like humans are social creatures. Yeah, these days you get a lot of people who are who would say, "I prefer staying home alone and reading. The pandemic was a boom for me because I didn't have to go out. But at the end of the day, like we, we we're creatures that form societies. we we're creatures that form communities. And, and yeah, I gotta say that's pride. I'm gonna that's a good one for me to because that I'm very prideful when I get fearful or or if I feel hurt. Um, and that's a good one for me to sit with. It, it also makes me think immediately of nationalism and why it's so important that we don't think regionally and we don't think based on a community level. Like it's more important that just based on the territories here, uh, we're Canadian. It's more important having this Id- identity than others. And yeah, because that gives us something to fall back on and feel safe. It lets us be pride, be prideful in stuff that we had n- nothing to do with and yet run from the things that make us feel f- that, that discomfort you're talking about. Because I don't know about you, that's actually a good question I'm going to ask you now. Because what drove me to a lot of this work was the more uncomfortable I became, the easier it was for me to learn. So now, did you find yourself like being drawn to uncomfortable experiences? Okay. Uh, no, I was just like everybody else, avoiding a difficult conversation and living in my bubbles and hoping that somebody else will take the lead and hoping that somebody else will take responsibility of the problems we're seeing. So the truth is that I was always really good in difficult conversation relation, related to relationships, like personal conversation, but I never took it to politics. So for many years, I believed, for most of my life, I believed that I, politics is not for me. And I also think that many women are like that. And many people that don't remember details or don't remember the history or don't remember exactly a research, they feel like it's not for them to talk about topics that they're not expert at. And that's the problem because it leaves those conversations only to experts. And we're not really engaged. But you know what? I got to say, yeah, experts, like, the only reason why it's easy for me to maybe remember the things that, like, we've talked, like, all these factoids and stuff like that, it's, it's honestly just because of having spent the time sitting with it experts are are full of shit we all google stuff before we go have a conversation with someone like you doing a podcast just to make sure there's a few stuff that's fresh uh and and really we're all messed up individuals like we're all just human the university especially the university it trains us to sound authoritative it trains us to sound like especially men to sound like we know what we're talking about but like quite honestly the only reason why i'm good at university and like the only reason why i'm doing a phd is because i'm a straight white man it's an area that for, for whatever reason i i can f- navigate i can feel even though i'm there's a lot of class issues between me and the university i can navigate it but like professionals are full of garbage the more we put our uh, trust in professionals the more we need them and the more our society then becomes less about the in, like what each of us can contribute to a community and it becomes about like what our community has capacity to deal with which is is crazy like communities wouldn't have existed if they had to sit around waiting for professionals to, to show up and tell them how to build fire or like hunt there's more strength in you finding ways to share these kind of discussions especially like you're saying with like with women this society is just so fucking garbage to women constantly and silences the feminine so perpetually that you're doing a better service than like fools like me who maybe think that we've got some expert knowledge and 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 want to share it no i think we're all needed don't say fools like me i think we're all needed but we what is very important and i think it's also in fairy creek that we value the differences Mm -hmm. instead Uh, of saying because 
I remember arguments that I had with my husband for many years. He, we were arguing about money and he said, let's decide the plan. And I was looking at the receipt and saying, why did you buy this in, I don't know, 20 bucks? I said, why are you so detail oriented? Look, 20 bucks. This is nothing. Let's think about the big picture. And it took me many years to say to him, our differences, what makes us stronger together. It's not one way. Like we also need to, to look at the big picture, have strategy for the future. And we also need to look at the right now, how much budget we have and if this 20 bucks was worth it or not. At the same time, it's not one or the other. And I think it's very quick. Like Glenn can do this, like driving around and that, but he cannot sit in circles. No way. And that's fine. We don't need to, to judge somebody because he cannot sit in circle or judge somebody because he cannot drive all day. So value our differences is like understanding the importance of permaculture to monocrop or uh, the ecosystem and the diversity that we are stronger when we have more. We are stronger when we are together. We are stronger when we allow differences to, to grow and to be. That's a good point. Because the, let's say the Douglas fir tree, or I'll, I'll go with red cedar because it doesn't have a white guy's name in it. But like, so like, let's say the red cedar tree doesn't do what the mycelia or the mushrooms do in the soil. And it needs the, the mushrooms to do what it's doing in the soil, but it'll never tell the mushrooms, hey, you need to be doing it this way. If, you, right. if we do learn to live more like in an ecology of relationships, where because like, Aniela, thank you for sharing that with me, the, like the big picture versus the intricacies and like the differences <laughs> being our strengths, because that's what it is. Being in camp or uh, even being in a good partnership, it's I can't do that. That's why I'm hanging out with you. And let's celebrate those those things because we it makes us whole. But my feeling is this like worshiping of the professional, that, that becomes problematic, right? Because we get so worried about saying something wrong or doing something wrong that like it paralyzes us. And then how do we then get together? Because if, if none of us are admitting, oh, I'm bad, like I don't drive, and, but I'm really good at math, like where do you need me? If we, don't, if we can't admit our faults, then we'll never find out where those differences are to strengthen each other. Yeah. If we can't admit our faults, we are covering something and the wisdom and creativity doesn't flow in us because we are in a state of fear that you will find out my fallacies, you will find out that and I will be tight, like the body is getting tight, 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 and <laughs> nothing flows and I can't breathe even. Right on. And, and for some yeah. people, and like just looping it back to an earlier point of the conversation, for some people, that fear will get them to do terrible things. And that's where shit rolls downhill, be it in an abusive family or even an abusive society like ours. Imagine now you've got a whole group of people who have bought into this concept of whiteness so heavily. And we know it's a fucking lie and we can see it. But if we were to stand up and admit it, what would we be left with? That's got to make some people really terrified. And then it's, you got to hold on to your racism because it's the only thing you have left to, of any value. Yeah. And that allows for so much space for oppression to just like creep in. And like, then we start to become the oppressors, right? And maybe the whole family concept too, because when you start to have family and you have people to take care of and kids that are so vulnerable, hmm. you, you start to hoard things, you start to protect them hmm. and you become less free. So I wonder if this whole concept of uh, family and marriages, and it's another form of controlling because it's definitely oh, yeah. limit you, you and limit your sexuality and limits all kinds of things. You don't limit your budget. Also supporting your budget if you, you don't, I don't know, you share resources, right. like you have more people in a family, but it's a... Uh, you become so obsessed of those their diseases and their illnesses and their needs and their school and, and then you can't be in the world and explore and, and read more information and understand what's going on in the world like yeah. or, or even help out your community and i, I want to just check the time real quick but yeah, yeah maybe if you would want to do another episode someday on the family because like yell yeah, that whole thing is an invention like from the the nuclear family becoming the the dominant form of north american um social organization in 30s, 40s, and 50s, to the Christian concept of, of marriage being an exchange of property, women being property and as an extension of the property of their parents, and thus marriage being this like heteronormative coupling of God's, like per God's laws so that property can continue to flow, to the disillusion of co-parenting. You know, how many, imagine how easy it would be, how easy it would be if we all live some of my, like a friend of mine married, married, married a white guy. She's, her name is Vicky. She's from, she's a Choli. She's from Northern Uganda. 
she married a white friend of mine and they moved to Edmonton. And I asked her what she had, a, she had her second kid in Edmonton or in Montreal. And I said, how was it? And she says, I'm never having another child in Canada. It's the most isolating experience in the world. Because when she did it at home in Gulu, she had her aunties, she had her uncles, she had her sisters and she had her cousins. And if she needed to do something, or let's say she didn't have the, she, she couldn't feed her kid that day. And that's not literally her, her situation, but all the kids were being parented by the community. All the interactions between them, between those families then became stronger. And you, you ended up not just being worried about, because if your kid's starving, that probably means all the kids on your street are starving. And instead of it then being about, I need to hoard, I need to hoard food at home so that my kid doesn't starve. It then becomes, how can we make sure the whole community has food? So the, like getting rid of co-parenting and getting rid of the fact that white people don't call everyone in our parents' age auntie or uncle or like everyone in our age cousin, it, that tells us a lot about the mechanisms of control and how important it is to have a man who is like the, the king of the house or now the prime minister of the house. Yes, and it sounds like, wow, the prime minister of the house, but it's a false power situation because the man is hooked now to provide and he can't really be free to do what he wants to be himself. And in this situation, all of us feel wronged because none of us really fit really to the mold of the way we should be. And we are not free to be who we are. Thank you for listening to the Effective Conversations podcast. Please reach out to talk about how we can help you and your organization transform conflict into cooperation. Don't forget to share the podcast to support others in healing their hearts, the divide, and our planet. Thank you.